Please stand for the reading of God's word. We are in Colossians 3:17 through 4:1. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourself to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of God. Good morning. Well, today we conclude our series in this wonderful letter of Paul to the Colossians, and I've really enjoyed going through this uh, together this fall, and um, yeah, I'm sad that it's ending, and, uh, but it's been really, really sweet. I've, this has been a really meaningful letter to me. Uh, we've been talking about all fall, uh, the series is called Life in Christ. How do we live our lives in Christ? And my big picture idea has been that what what the Christian life is all about is not just about believing a set of truths, though it includes that, but it's really the heart of it is, is this union with Jesus Christ, that we now, by faith, have this deep commitment to the person of Jesus, and our identity is wrapped up with his, our destiny is wrapped up with his, our, everything about us is about Jesus Christ. And um, so what, what chapter three has been all about is, okay, so how do you live out your life with Christ practically? And we're going to look at that again today as a final one. Um, I'm skipping, just so you know, where I'm skipping the final greetings in chapter 4. If you go into verse 7, he start, kind of goes into some greetings, so we're missing that. Um, sorry about that. And then Pastor Adrian taught, you know, 4 verse 2 last week. So um, I'm going to start by just saying, you know, you know this, is, this is the end of the series, and I'll just say it kind of ends, uh, at least at first sight, in some unfortunate ways. It ends on a controversial note, you know, like uh, verse 18 has the S word in it. Uh, submit. Uh, uh, verse 22 has the other S word in it, slaves. Um, so there, you know, there's, some, there's always controversy surrounding passages like this. And this is not a sermon on marriage. It's not a sermon on slavery. So I'm not going to solve all of the, some of the issues that are raised for some people about these, these passages. But let's just acknowledge this is a bit of a controversial passage in uh, Western culture today. Uh, and it also ends kind of on a, you might think, an uh, anticlimactic uh, way, right? Like we've, there's been these like epic passages so far. The, the, the chapter one starts, Paul's like, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit. And then in chapter one, you have this amazing uh, description of Jesus. He is the, the image of the invisible God, right? All things were created through him, for him. This is exalted passages. And we end on something as mundane as, you know, wives and husbands, parents and children, slaves and masters, right? Just kind of ordinary life. And I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, actually, I'm so glad 
this is where we're ending this. Uh, because this is actually the essence of the Christian life, is learning how to live out your relationship with Jesus in the ordinary moments of your life as it actually is. So that's really what I want to talk about. That's what I want to focus on this morning. I want to, and before we look at some of the verses, I just want to make two high-level observations about uh, this passage. And the first is the one I just mentioned, is that Paul is, is just dropping us squarely into the ordinary, everyday, mundane, unextraordinary aspects of our lives, right? The things that we do uh, all day long. And, and it kind of confronts, I'll just say, maybe an expectation I had earlier in my life as I was trying to follow Jesus, I had this expectation like if I was really radically committed to Jesus, if I was really living at the kind of the higher plane of spirituality than I'm right now, there's some life other than the one I'm currently. There's something beyond what I'm doing. There's something out there that if I could just kind of harness it, I would be doing these things that I'm not doing currently, and I'd be out there doing these amazing things. It would be more dramatic and more radical than the life I have today. And I think especially, you know, as Americans, we kind of have a flair for the dramatic, you know, we, we, we have a flair for the extraordinary and, and the dramatic. And then as you add Christians on top of that, right, and, and we are people who want to change the world, right? And that's a good thing. I think Paul wanted to change the world as well. Uh, but again, Paul in this passage, he just puts us right in the, the daily things that every human being encounters, as if to say, you want to change the world? Great. Start with your marriage. You know, you want to change the world? Great. Start with how you treat your kids. Start with how you engage in your work and the tasks that are before you every single day. I was reading this week that there was, a, there was this monastic Christian community house and there was a sign that hung on the wall that went this way. Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. And uh, Paul faces us squarely into the dishes today, right? The ordinary, the stuff that you are, it's a part of your life every day. And, and these are the contexts and relationships where there's no spiritual high. There's no spiritual hit that you get, right? This is just the stuff of your life. Uh, and it's also the places where, <laughs> where there's no hiding who you actually are, right? Marriage, parenting, work, where your entirely ordinary self comes out all the time. And Paul's saying, that is the arena of your life with Christ. I was thinking this week, I'll give you an example. Um, over the last six or seven years, I've been part of the ministry that we do uh, for people who are experiencing homelessness. So, you know, every six weeks, we do a breakfast down at the Crossing Church, and uh, there's, you know, 40, 50 folks on the streets so that come to that. And so I've been a part of that over the years. And it's interesting, you know, so I'll wake up on a Saturday morning at 7, and I'll get over there, and, and I'm on when I'm there, right? I'm, I'm engaging, I'm, I'm curious, I'm listening, I'm trying to encourage. There's folks at Grace there that I love to, to be with, and there's folks on the streets, and I, I want to hear their stories, and I come, home, I come home on a high every single time, like, oh, that was so good. Uh, but then I get home at about 10 a.m., and I'm a little tired from all of that, and then I come back to my actual children, and my actual spouse, and my actual self, who's now a little tired. And I'm not on anymore. I'm not ministering, right? I'm just me as I am. And, and, a, and a different me <laughs> presents itself in that context. 
And Paul is saying that context, as much as that context, that is where your life with Jesus is lived out. And you might have a similar experience on Sunday mornings, right? You come to church, and we're on, in a sense. And here's, here's our spiritual time. And, uh, and then you head home to whatever home looks like, and the real you shows up. And Paul's like, that, that is the place where you learn to live out your life with Jesus Christ. It's not something out there. It is right here in front of you every moment of your day. And again, there's something maybe less um, flashy, less sexy about that. (laughs) But on the positive side, if we can embrace that, what it means is the most ordinary responsibilities and relationships can become infused with deep spiritual meaning and purpose if we allow Jesus to be a part of what we do and how we do what we do, okay? So, but it confronts kind of an, an expectation maybe I had of the Christian life. And then one other big picture idea, there's a phrase that Paul repeats twice that gets it to the, the very heart of this passage, okay? I want you to see this phrase. It starts in verse 17. It might have felt weird to start in verse 17 because that, you're, you probably have a new heading in your Bible, but um, I wanted you to see verse 17. The phrase is, whatever you do, Okay, look at verse 17. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 23, you'll see it again. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for uh, human masters. Whatever you do, in every circumstance, in every relationship, in every responsibility, he says, do it in the name of Jesus. Okay? And we might need to think about, what, it, what does it mean to do something in the name of Jesus? What does that even mean? Okay, if you look at verse 17, I think there's a phrase that follows it that gives us a little glimpse. Do everything in the name of Jesus. What does he say next? Giving thanks to God the Father through him. So at least that means whatever you do, do it as a response of gratitude to Jesus. Do it, do it as a way of, of showing Jesus, I'm really grateful for what you did in my life. And last week, Pastor Adrian talked a lot about the gospels is how the grace of God has been poured out on us. So you wanna live each day being mindful of, man, I have received so much grace. So much goodness has come my way. And I, I wanna do whatever I'm doing as, as a, a, a response of thanksgiving for what's happened, right? I think he would also mean, and I wanna do whatever I do in order to please the Lord, simply put. I, I'm... When I do things, I'm thinking about Jesus, and I'm thinking, how could I do this in a way that would please him, or that would bring him glory, that would point to who he is? But simply put, there's, whenever I do something, there's always a, there's a third thing, there's a third presence. There's me, and the, there's the thing I'm doing, and then there's Jesus, and he's the filter through which I do all that I do. I'm doing what I do in his name. As though I'm working for him, I do it to please him, to bring him glory, okay? These are basic Christian concepts that are radical if you were to live them out, okay? Whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do, it is the Lord Jesus you are serving, okay? When you sing at church, sing in the name of Jesus. When you play pickleball or tennis after church, play in the name of Jesus, When you make purchases on Amazon this afternoon, make them in the name of Jesus. 
when you cheer your, your kids on in sports, right? When you clean the house, when you eat meals, do everything in the name of Jesus. Okay, this reminds me uh, of, a, of a chart. I once, I think we spent a whole men's retreat talking about this. This confronts a way a lot of church-going folk think about their Christian lives, okay? And try to follow with me here if it shows up and it's not showing up. Uh, Jane, you, can you see my, there it is. Okay, let me see if I have control over that. Do I? No. I, oh, you know what? I think I unplugged it. Okay, you're going to have to, I'm just going to cue each time. Okay, a lot of us think of our lives these way. We, we think, what's my goal in life? My goal in life is to live a fulfilling life. I, I want to be happy. I want to flourish. I want to have a good, joyful, fulfilling life. So what we do is we kind of divide our life into, into parts, right? And um, we think, okay, all right, here we go, guys. Just start going, okay, I've got the financial component of my life. Okay, I want to flourish there. Next one. Um, I've got the relational. I want to have good relationships in my life. Next one. Uh, there's the occupational. I want to have a job that, you know, provides. It's satisfying. Next one. Uh, I have a recreational. I have hobbies. I have interests. Hopefully, I have some of those. Next one. Uh, of course, there's my physical life. There's my health and my fitness and final one. And also, there's this piece called the spiritual life, right? And I want to have that. Uh, next one. Okay, good. And so, so we go, th- there's the place where my spiritual life fits into the rest of my life. And the thought is, if I can have sort of a balanced approach, and if I can have all these things firing on all cylinders, that's kind of how... I'm going to have a rich and flourishing life. Yeah? Make sense? Okay. Um, and that's not how Paul talks about the spiritual life at all. Um, right? That, the problem with that is, is the spiritual life is relegated to a piece of the pie. All right. Next slide. Here's how... Um, yes. Okay. Here's Paul's idea. No, here's the goal. The goal is to do all things in the name of Christ. The goal is, is, right, is whatever you're doing, work at it heartily unto the Lord. Whatever you're doing in any of these areas, areas, do this in a way that would please and glorify Jesus. That is the goal of our lives. So, next one, right? The spiritual life is not just a piece of the pie. Next one, right? It's the whole pie, <laughs> right? Everything I do, everything I do, how can I engage in my finances in a way that gives glory to Jesus? How can I navigate relationships? How can I go about my work? How can I go about my, my recreational activities? How can I approach my body as a temple of the Lord, right? This whole thing, every part of my life, whatever you do, Paul says, whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. Okay, thank you for that. Sorry, that was extra work for you guys. Um, so what I want to do is just, that's, that's the big idea I want to talk about today. Paul is saying, it is life with Christ in every relationship, every responsibility, every moment of your day, and oftentimes that's the entirely ordinary, unextraordinary, mundane responsibilities of daily life. That is the arena where your life with Jesus is lived out. All right? Okay, so let's turn to these three examples. We'll just look at them briefly today. He talks about marriages. He talks about parenting. And he talks about, first century, in that case, slaves and masters. So let's talk about marriages for the next five minutes, okay? Let me read it. Verse 18. Wives, 
Submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay? So, um, you know, these two verses raise a lot of controversy, right? This is, when I preach sermons on this, I get more elbow bumping than in any other sermon, you know, more rolled eyes and whispers and all that kind of stuff. Um, let me give you a one-minute summary of Paul's theology of marriage, okay? That, which is also my theology of marriage, in case you're wondering. Um, for Paul, the definitive passage to understand marriage is Genesis 2. When he talks about marriage, when he talks about the church, he goes back to Genesis 2 so often, which is the story, of course, of Adam and Eve. God creates a man out of the dust, breathes life into him, and then he takes from the man's rib and forms a woman out of the man, this helper, this perfect counterpart, and then he brings the woman to the man in the first kind of marriage ceremony of all time. And so you have this, this unity that was taken and then reunited in marriage, and that passage concludes by by the author saying, for this reason, a man will leave his husband and, and his husband, his man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh, okay? This is Paul's theology of marriage. Male, female, this wonderful one flesh union, okay? Intimacy, connection, commitment. And Paul then says in Ephesians, and guess what? There was a mystery built into marriage from the beginning. And the mystery that God had, it was a secret, essentially, that God kept from us until Jesus came. The mystery is that that one flesh union between a husband and a wife was all along intended to point to the one flesh union that Jesus wants to have with his bride, the church. So that a marriage between husband and wife is to be this beautiful reflection of the love and sacrifice and commitment that Jesus has for his church. Marriage was to be an enacted drama, okay, of the relationship between Christ and the church. Husbands, in this drama, you play the role of Christ. How did Christ treat his bride? He sacrificed himself for her. He gave himself up for her. He feeds her. He protects her as his own body because we are his body. Husbands... That's how you ought to be with your wives, sacrificial love, commitment, and care. Wives, in this drama, you play out the role of the church. How is the church supposed to relate to Christ? With courageous submission, with care, with love, respect, right? This is, this is how this works, okay? That's, that is Paul's theology of marriage, and I'll just tell you this, whatever you think of that, that view, when two people are living that out, and when a husband isn't worried about whether his wife is fulfilling whatever role she's got in that, and is just focusing on my job is to sacrificially love and give myself to my wife. And when the wife is not worried about whether the husband's being exactly like Christ, and she's going, my job is to courageously submit and respect and honor and love this man, okay? When, those, when both partners are doing that, I promise you every time, that is a beautiful thing. And in a culture that is so confused right now about marriage, about gender, about sexuality, that can present a very, I believe, compelling picture of what marriage can be. All right? That was probably three minutes. Sorry. That's Paul's theology of marriage. Okay. That being said, let me just be very simple here. And look at this phrase today, given what we're talking about today. Look at the end of verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Here's the phrase. 
as is fitting in the Lord, right? Or we could say, for the Lord's sake, or in the name of the Lord, or working as to the Lord. This idea that whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. Now let's apply that to our marriages. What does it look like to, to live in a marriage for Jesus' sake, right? For his glory, as though we're, we're doing it for him. And so let me just, like, super simple, let me ask you, those of you who are married, the simple question, why do you love your spouse? Or let me, or let's say it this way, why, why are you trying to love your spouse? Okay? I, I didn't mean it in that, that's, that came out the wrong way. Like, <laughs> why are you doing such a bad job of loving your spouse? No, uh, when you are seeking to love your spouse, why are, what's the why? Okay, and let me give you three options. Uh, one is you try to love your spouse for his or her sake. Okay, well, I try to love my spouse because I want to care for them. I, um, I care for them and I want good things for them. And so, of course, I love them for those reasons. That's a really good reason to love your spouse. So, Simple analogy, right? You come home at the end of the day, and the house is a disaster, let's say. Your spouse has had a hard day, you've had a hard day, and you decide, um, you know what, I'm going to clean up the house, and I'm going to do it for my spouse's sake, right? I know they've had a hard day. I don't want them to have to do this, and so I'll do this because I care for them. I love them, and I want to help them. That's a really good reason to do that, okay? That's a reason. Uh, Here's a second reason that we don't like to admit, but that is high on our list. Uh, I love my spouse for my sake, right? I, I try to love my spouse because I think my life will be better uh, with a loved spouse than with an unloved spouse, right? Like, um, so to use the analogy, I, I'll, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean up because maybe there'll be something for me at the end of the night, or maybe, maybe they'll, 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 you know, they'll, um, they'll return the favor next, you know, next time, right? <laughs> and, and I'm sorry, but most of us got into marriage for our sake. That's just true. We got into marriage because we found someone who was very compelling to us and made our lives a lot better. And we were maybe even infatuated with this person. But they, they filled us with a set of exciting emotions and feelings, and we loved them for our sake, right? It's totally natural. We can love them for their sake. We can love them for our sake. And, Christ, and Paul is saying, what would it look like to love your spouse for Christ's sake? That's, that's the issue here. Whatever you do, including your marriage, do it in the name of Jesus. What would it look like for me to love my spouse for Christ's sake? What, if, what does it mean to, to listen to my spouse when, in my case, when she's talking to me, right? When, she, when we're engaging, because um, I have a, a wife, right? You might have a husband. Um, why am I listening to her right now? Well, because one option is if I don't, she'll get angry with me. Uh, another is um, I care for her, good reasons. But what does it look like to listen to my spouse as an act of worship to Jesus? There's a third person in this relationship, and it's Jesus. What does it look like to listen to my spouse out of devotion to Jesus, as if working heartily unto the Lord and not to, in this case, a woman, right? Right? Why do I respect my spouse? Do I respect them because they're respectable? Or do I respect them out of respect for Jesus? 
And, and this third option, again, it might not sound as quite as romantic, um, but man, if we can love our spouses for Jesus' sake, that is a marriage that will, will last. Because you're going to have moments in your marriage, and we all have had them, where you get in a big fight, right? And now you're in separate rooms, and you've either, you're, you've either attacked or withdrawn or both, but now you're separate. And the question is, who's going to take the first step to make repair? Who, who's going to take that moment to say, I'm sorry? And what motivates you to do that? There's a lot of motivations, but the ultimate motivation is this, out of devotion to Jesus, for Jesus' sake, in the name of Jesus, for you, I'm doing this for you, Jesus, ultimately, not for my spouse, right? That's a much more powerful place, because what happens, um, for instance, when, when you've been betrayed by your spouse in some really painful ways, what's going to keep you in that marriage when there's, there's nothing in your spouse in that moment or in that issue that feels um, respectable, right? That does, it doesn't deserve ongoing commitment. Well, you have to have this third commitment that's in the middle of the marriage to, to make that work. Or how about uh, many of you have spouses who in some area are just very hard-hearted, right? There's something in their lives that you would, you would love to change and... Um, but it's just, you know what it's like to live with someone whose heart is hard, and at least in some area of their, of their life. How do you keep on just loving them, being gracious to them in that? Well, you don't do it for their sake. That won't last long enough for you. You have to be doing it for Jesus' sake. Right? This is basic Christianity, but it's radical Christianity. That's what Paul is saying. You need that third person who is Jesus to be at the center of your marriage. All right, briefly, let's go on to the next verses. Children and parents, verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Notice that phrase again. Why? Why are you obeying your parents? For this pleases the Lord. You don't obey your parents to please your parents, though that's a really good idea as kids, right? But ultimately, you obey your parents because this pleases the Lord. And parents, he mentions fathers. Those, that's for sure the head of the household in the first century, right? Fathers, as you think about your kids, we might say, parent your children for the sake of the Lord. Again, as parents or grandparents, okay? Many of your grandparents in this room. Why do we parent our kids? Why do we, why do we try to raise them up in a certain way? One reason is we do it for their sake, Right? I want to love these kids. I want to discipline these kids. I want to raise them up because I want them to turn into thriving, healthy, flourishing adults. Okay? It's a good reason to parent. Or we parent for our sake. And all of us parent for our sake. I want well-behaved kids because well-behaved kids are funner to live with than ill-behaved kids. That's a good reason to parent, right? Or this gets a little, you know, closer to home for some of us. I want to raise good kids because good, successful kids, whether that's in sports or school or at work, will be a reflection of me, right? Paul would say, I think, no, raise and love your kids for Christ's sake. You, you are raising kids as an act of worship to Jesus. Jesus, my relationship with you is played out in how I respond to my children, and that has a better shot, I promise you, of, of make, turning you into a very consistent, loving parent or grandparent in the thick 
of the mess that is every family. Last weekend we did our, um, on last Friday, we did our uh, Christmas decorating. So we went out and, you know, went to, went to the fairgrounds, got a Christmas tree. And um, as is the Gunlock family tradition, I, halfway into it, I just tagged our, our, our second born. I said, you're it. And we had like 15 minutes of uh, hide and go seek around the Christmas tree, which my brother and I were doing, you know, 35 years ago. Um, epic start, Christmas tree, bring the tree home. Christmas music, music is on. You can't start Christmas music until after Thanksgiving is finished. So we started, you know, this is Friday after Thanksgiving. And um, I'm getting the Christmas tree ready. And then Carrie and the girls are, are decorating with all these, class, you know, all these old ornaments that the girls have made. And at some point, some, um, some great injustice takes place in the house. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I think someone had gotten to put up more ornaments than somebody else. And this needed to be dealt with. And, uh, and so then things just kind of turned sour, um, and, and it kind of spread. I, I actually found the words coming out of my mouth that, like, you know, kids, um, attitudes are like viruses. They, they can spread to one another, and I'm thinking, what am I saying right now? <laughs> and, uh, and, but I remember sitting on the couch watching this unfold, and I, I actually, I, I was, I've been thinking about this lately, and I realized, like, Nothing's going wrong right now. Like, we have this image, this expectation, and then, then it's all gone south. And I realize, like, nothing's gone wrong. This is who we are. <laughs> this is who we are as a family. Like, this is, we, we went to Joshua Tree uh, Thanksgiving week, and we, this <laughs> happens almost every time. Uh, we're two minutes into our drive, right? It's exciting. We're going overnight. We're going to see this place that kids have never seen. All this, you know, you're all packed up. You're going. And then the girl's getting a bicker, and then Carrie tries to, to move to repair, she's in the front. She says, how about this to one of our kids? And the, our, our kid misinterpreted her and just snapped at her. And it's just like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> you know, and, and I remember thinking, this is who we are. <laughs> this, is, this is who we are. And um, so when you're in a moment like that as a parent, or again as a grandparent, what, where do you go? Like, what's the why behind what you do next, right? And, and in that, it was actually, in that case, we just kind of sat with it for, for a second. And, um, and like 20 minutes later, this was a, a win for us, that child just kind of initiated an apology to mom from the back of the car. And, and I thought, this is, what, this is what family's for. Like families, this is what we do. Families are there to learn how to fail, to learn how to love, to learn how to wound, to learn how to repair, all in the context of the grace of Jesus. And so I actually got through that drive. I'm like, you know what? It was better for that daughter that she did that and then that she apologized. That was better than if that had never happened. Like that was a win. Um, and they don't always go that way, of course, you know. Um, but why do we... Why do we interact the way we do in our families, with our kids, with our parents, with our, our grandparents, grandkids, right? Jesus has to be the reason. He, he has to be at the core of what we do. All right, one more. Let's look at first century slavery to finish off this series. Um, let me just acknowledge... Uh, you know, again, like as with marriage, uh, Paul's comments to slaves and masters in several of his letters uh, raises questions for us as 21st century uh, Western, you know, 
people living in a democracy. And there's, there's all sorts of things we wish he would say in these moments that he doesn't say. And, and let me just kind of give you my one-minute take on that, and we can talk offline. Um, how are we doing? You guys all good still? I feel like I've been talking a long time up here, but okay, we're going to keep going. I have no idea what time it is. Um, a couple things to just note about. One is this. Abolition is simply not on the table in first century Roman society. Okay? It's just not. And Paul is not writing letters to the, um, the, the you know, authorities in Rome about, if he was, he would probably say a bunch of things to, about the institution of slavery. But he's, he's writing to, to churches, <laughs> to Christians who live in a broken system, trying to help them figure out how their relationship with Jesus can actually transform how they live in a very broken system. Okay? But I would argue that the seeds of abolition are present in the writings of Paul, which is sometimes not thought about very carefully. But when you look at even what he says in this passage, there's actually a very equalizing force. There's an equalizing premise that he has going here. He says this, verse 22, Slaves, obey your, and my translation says earthly masters. Literally, he says, obey your masters in the flesh according to the flesh, right? According to the way human beings think about things, these are your masters. Hint, hint, but you have a real master and it's not this person, right? And then look at what he says um, to the masters in chapter four, verse one. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven, okay? That's an equalizing thing. In the flesh, this is how it works in this broken system. But remember, guys, you have the same master in heaven. And he ends verse 25 saying, remember, there's no favoritism with him. He doesn't care whether you're slave or master. There's no favoritism there. Um, when Paul has opportunities to speak into this issue of slavery, he does. So there's an entire book of the Bible written about slavery. It's called the book of Philemon. Okay? And you should read it. It's one chapter. You can read it in about a minute and a half. Right? In the context of Philemon, is there's a, there was a slave who ran, it probably wasn't a Christian at the time, ran away, and uh, Paul was in prison, r- runs away and runs to a different town where Paul is, encounters Paul somehow, becomes a Christian, is converted to Jesus, and now Paul is writing his master to say, hey, I'm going to send, the slave's name is Onesimus, I'm going to send him back to you. So imagine the dynamics of runaway slave, converted into Christianity, meets Paul, and Paul's trying to figure out what to do. And I want you to you should read it. And he says, I'm going to send him back to you. I, I would ask that you receive him no longer as a slave, but as a brother. Okay? If he owes you anything, charge it to my account. By the way, you owe me your whole life because I, I, I brought you to faith in general. So he he's actually leans pretty heavily on Philemon to welcome back this person. Okay? Let me show you one other passage. Uh, Golden, will you give me this? I'm trying to do like a a sermon on slavery in two minutes, but I think these are important things to think about because they're so relevant in in how people feel about this book. Um, This is 1 Corinthians. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free uh, when called is Christ's slave. Next, Next one. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Okay? So that's what Paul has to say. When he has an opportunity to speak into it, I think it's clear what he thinks about the institution. But in contexts like this, he's trying to help people live within a broken system and let their relationship with Jesus transform that. All right, so um, let me make a simple jump from the, the occupation of a first century slave, this is a bit of a leap, right, but to 
our work, the work and tasks that each one of us has before us. Okay, some of you are in an occupation, right? You are in a paid job. Some of you are no longer in a paid job, but you have these daily responsibilities. Okay, think about a first century slave, what their daily responsibilities were. Agrarian society, right? So undoubtedly, they spent time cleaning, probably, cooking, probably, um, out in the fields, probably. Uh, Some of them were in charge of the household finances. Some of them had quite a bit of responsibility over the house. But you can think of the various tasks that a first century slave uh, in, in Palestinian culture may have had. And here's Paul's comment to them. As you go about your tasks, you're working for somebody, this human master. Instead, I want you to imagine that you're working for Jesus. That's, that's what he says, right? I, 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 you, it's, it's the Lord that you're working for. So I want you to picture, if it's the Lord I'm working for, how would I, how would I work these fields with Jesus as the one I'm trying to please? How would I clean these pots? How would I clean this house? How would I cook this food as if I'm actually not working for a master in the flesh, I'm working for my master in the spirit, Jesus. And so what would it look like for us to think about our work in that way? Whatever I have to do, I'm actually working for Jesus, right? And he says here, that's why he says, do it this way, not when their eye is on you to curry their favor, because guess what? Your master's eye is always on you, right? You can never get away from from him watching you, and you want to please him. And depending on what kind of work you do, you might kind of hear this, you're like, seriously, like, honestly, like, are you saying like, write an email in the name of Jesus? Is that what you're telling me, right? Like, um, fill out this form in the name of Jesus, clean teeth in the name of Jesus, right? Take this deposition in the name of Jesus. And I'm like, I I think that's what Paul's saying. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, if, if, if a first century slave do the task before them in the name of Jesus, and Paul clearly is calling them to do that, then surely there's a way to do that. Jesus is always present with me. Many of you know about Brother Lawrence, uh, this 17th century monk who wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence of God, and I'll, I'll finish with this. Um, Brother Lawrence suffered um, from some chronic physical condition. People say it was some kind of sciatic gout that kind of got worse and worse as the years went on. And so he had to do some of the menial tasks. He started as as the cook, but over time his body wouldn't allow him to do that. So he ended up having to sit, and he was the shoe repairer, the sandal repairer in the monastery. Uh, Not that different from some first century slaves, I'm sure, in terms of the tasks before him. And uh, one last slide. I, I love how he says this. This sums up, I think, what Paul's saying. Think often on Jesus, by day, by night, in your business, and even in your diversions. He is always near you and with you. And here's the phrase that really hit me this week. Our sanctification doesn't depend upon changing our works, but in doing that for Jesus' sake, which we commonly do for our own. We ought to give ourselves up to him in all things and seek our satisfaction only in the fulfilling of his will, whether he lead us by suffering or by consolation, for all would be equal to a soul truly resigned. But that, that phrase, our sanctification, is not about changing our works, but doing them for Jesus' sake. And that's where I want to leave us in this series on Colossians, that your life in Christ is all about doing your things 
for Jesus' sake. And so I want, to, I want you to be considering, it's not so much the what that I do, but it's the why that I do. Uh, maybe my works don't need to change at all, but why am I doing what I'm doing? And I just want to say, take it from me, okay? A guy who spent a good chunk of his life doing the right things for the wrong reasons, okay? Doing good things for my sake, right? Um, I think there's a, there's a new, I'll just tell you, there's a new way God is inviting me to do the same old things with a very different motivation, whether that's preaching a sermon, whether that's loving my wife, whether that's writing an email, whether that's whatever, I'm trying to stay healthy, whatever it is, um, you're united to Jesus. He died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who gave himself up for them. This is, this is the great why behind what we do. Amen. So we're going to spend some time praying now um, to wrap up this series. Actually, in a second, uh, Rob and Ryan and Christine are all going to share uh, prayers for each of these areas, for marriages, for, for families, grandparents, parents, and then for our work, okay? But I wanna, I'm going to have you just take a moment, if you would just close your eyes, and um, I want you to sit with what we've just been talking about. And my, my question for you would be, um, what is one specific context in your life? It might be a relationship or a responsibility or a place or whatever, whereas you've heard this, you think, you, know, you can't change your life all in one shot, but what is one context where you think, I want to make Jesus more at the center of that. I, I want to start to engage that thing in my life for his sake, right? To please him as a response of gratitude rather than whatever motivation I have right now. It might be your marriage. It might be your parenting. It might be your work, um, whatever. But why don't you take a moment and just identify what that would be for you. And then Rob will come up and he'll lead us in the first prayer. As you're sitting there, um, I'm going to pray for marriages, and I want you to consider this passage from Philippians 2. Um, this is part of my prayer, um, so just receive it as that. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Lord, I pray that our marriages in particular would be marked by the same character, that we would... Uh, exhibit the same humility, the same sacrifice, uh, the same self-forgetfulness, the same service, the same selflessness. I pray that people would see that in us and that it would be motivated uh, by our devotion to you and our recognition that this is the type of person that we serve, that uh, this is the relationship that we enjoy as your church. These are the things that you did for us. You humbled yourself. 
You didn't use your position for advantage. You served us. You sacrificed for us, even to the point of death. And so I pray that those virtues, those characteristics would mark the marriages uh, of our church. And I also pray uh, marriage can be hard. And I'm sure in this room there are hard marriages, and that might just be for a moment or for a season, or maybe it's for the long haul. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give uh, the hard marriages in our church a vision for uh, covenant faithfulness and loyalty, for endurance, even when it's hard. Sometimes marriage can feel like suffering, Lord, and so I pray that even in that we would experience your presence uh, that we would even consider the ways that you uh, continue to remain faithful and loyal to us, the ways that you bear with us with tremendous patience, the way that you're slow to anger uh, towards us uh, as your church, as we continue to rebel and resist and make life difficult uh, with you. And so I pray that there would be a vision here that, that endurance uh, can bring tremendous glory to you as we seek to live marriages that, that are unto your name and for your glory, Lord. Uh, would you give the strength that only your spirit can give? Whether our marriages are good or hard, I pray that your spirit's power would be upon every marriage and would enable both spouses to love each other um, with the kind of love that only comes from someone who follows you. So we lift our marriages up to you and thank you for the gift that they are and even just the picture that they uh, give us of, your of our relationship as the church with you, uh, Jesus. We love you. Amen. We're going to take a moment now to pray for our children and for us as parents and grandparents. So will you pray with me? Father, we uh, thank you so much for every child or grandchild that is represented by us here in this room. We thank you that you have entrusted them to our care. We pray that you would draw them to yourself, that you would mark them with your spirit, that you would give them courage in this world to love you more than anything else. And Father, we pray as parents and grandparents that you would grant us wisdom by your spirit to love and care for and lead and guide our kids. We ask that you would give us a vision for each child that is reflective of you and the work you want to do in their lives, that you would help us have a vision for discipling them and leading them to you. And Father, we just acknowledge our own brokenness as parents, our need for forgiveness, the ways that we mess up. We thank you that you are a forgiving God, and we ask that we would even be able to offer our brokenness and our mess to you in our parenting, and that you could use that for the sake of your glory. Uh, Father, we ask that you would um, help us to be real in our relationship with you and a genuine faith that our kids can see, that we would model what it looks like to wrestle and struggle in this world, but also just to bow our knee to you. 
Lord, we pray that our children and our grandchildren would gain a vision of what it means to live life with you by watching us. Lord, we thank you that you care deeply about the lives of our kids, that you see them, that you have purpose for them. And I pray as parents that you help us lean into those purposes. As Dave said, not for our sake and not for their sake, but the sake of you, God, that you might be lifted up in our, in our houses and in our homes and in our families. Father, we pray that your fruits of righteousness would flourish in our homes. We pray that you would bring purity. We pray that we would reflect you to the world around us through our kids through our grandkids, through our own lives as we do this family together. Father, we thank you again that you are a God who cares and sees. And we pray this in your name. Amen. I'm going to be praying about work. And as I'm praying about work, uh, please recognize that this includes if you are going to school, that is work. If you are getting paid, or not paid, if you're at home watching the children, or out in the marketplace, these are all aspects of work, and then I will also lean into what retirement looks like in my prayer as well. Dear Jesus, thank you for being the gate and allowing us access to the Father. Thank you for tearing down the veil, and, and now we have... Uh, God, we have God, and we have access to God, and, and you are present with us through your spirit. So I thank you, Lord, that you are with us in the trenches as we work unto you. God, would you come alongside us, and rec may we recognize that we are not alone. Would you give, our, give us a higher vision for our work, that we don't do it for ourselves, we don't do it for employers, but we do it for you, our heavenly master. Lord, as we seek you and we uh, conversate with you, God, forgive us for ever putting you in a box, That's that spiritual uh, slice. God, you are in all things and through all things, and God, we can work um, for you in all things, no matter what it is you've put before us. Change our hearts and our attitudes attitudes to recognize and see you show up and guide us. Lord, be with us in our conversations and in our tones and the way that we treat and interact people. God, uh, Dave talked about how marriages can have this great impact on our society and, and, and lead people to focus on you. God, so it is with the workplace. Lord, may we make a stand for what is right and what is true in all humility, God. And even though we may face persecution um, or not raise up in, into the highest um, forms on the ladder, God, may we humbly serve you with a great contentment that no money can replace. Lord, may we treat others like it's their birthday every day. May we have this peace that flows through us that others can't help but stop and see, God. As everybody else is in the rat race, God, we get to eat lunch with the king. We get to commune with the king, whether we're in a cubicle or out on the road. God, you are with us at all times in all places. Would you empower us to work unto you, Lord? And may we love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.